continuing our soteriological series on the doctrines of grace. We're basically learning how God actually saves from Scripture, and we've been learning that it, uh, our understanding is quite different from what Scripture teaches, at least for many of us. Um, we have been focusing on the L in the Calvinistic tulip, which stands for limited atonement, and this will be our third week, third and final week on that particular doctrine, and I just kind of like to refresh our memories on what limited atonement means. It means that Christ lived and died as the substitute for His people, putting away their sin and turning away God's wrath uh, from them. That is, all those whom God chose in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's limited atonement. Basically, what we're saying is Christ died for a particular people. He redeemed a particular people. He's saving a particular people from among all those in the world. Of course, that's not what we've been taught, uh, but that's what the Scripture actually teaches. So that's what we've been focusing on three weeks. Um, let's see, we've looked at four pieces of evidence that support limited atonement thus far. Uh, God's eternal decree, limited atonement in the Old Testament, and we really focused on the sacrificial system, uh, limited atonement in the New Testament we looked at, and we properly interpreted verses that are said to support the opposite, unlimited atonement. Um, that's what we did last week. We took a bunch of verses that people used to kind of push the idea that Christ died for all, and we, we took those verses and we looked at them in context, and we even did a little language study and all that, kind of found out that they actually teach the opposite or they're not being used in reference to atonement at all. And uh, we do have one more piece of evidence that we must look at, and I would call it the fifth and final piece of evidence. Again, the Arminian thinker, the Arminian person, kind of, they claim that Christ's death on the cross, it didn't secure salvation for anyone in particular, and certainly not for the elect, but it simply makes salvation available for all. That's the Arminian thinking on, on what Christ did. It, he didn't go to the cross to die for Phil or, you know, to die, die for Bill or anyone else in particular. Because that means he would, die for, he would have been dying for a specific people, and that's not the way we ought to look at this. He went to the cross, not for anyone in particular, but for all in a, in a kind of a general way. That's what the Arminian thinks. That's what they teach. His death makes salvation a mere possibility, and really the determining factor is with us and with what we do with the gospel. It's not... God's not the determining factor. Election is not the determining factor. It's what, it's what we do with the knowledge or the information that we've been given. And if we choose to believe in, in the gospel, if we choose to believe that message of the gospel, then salvation, the work that Christ did at the cross, it's applied to us. But if we choose to reject the gospel, then salvation will be denied us. And really what we're talking about here is universal atonement. Okay, Christ died for all unilaterally, no one in particular, but for all in a general sense, in a very generic, even a, a, a hypothetical sense, He does this. And if we, if we do good and do right by that information, then we'll be saved. If we don't, then we'll, we'll be damned. That's universal atonement. That's the Arminian soteriology. But the Calvinist says that Christ's death on the cross actually secured salvation for a particular people, the elect. His death on the cross did not make salvation a mere possibility for, for anyone, uh, for everyone. It didn't make it just a possibility for everyone. It made it an absolute reality for some. 
And the determining factor is not us, but God Himself. He's the one that determines and did this in eternity past who is going to be saved. He did that by His own mercy in accordance with His own wisdom and plan. But like I always try to say to people, look, when you're the Creator, you can do with your creation whatever you want. But for whatever reason, we don't like that. But of course, we protect our homes, don't we? We do with our homes what we want, and nobody on the outside can tell us what we, want, what we should be doing with it. And when they do that, that's offensive to us, and we say, mind your own business. But apparently with God, it's not okay for Him to do with His creation what He wants. We have such double standards. But the Calvinist says, limited atonement. Christ went to the cross intentionally to die for a particular people. And the Bible uses unique terms when describing Christ's death on the cross. And when we understand the proper meaning of these terms and, and put them together, we see that Jesus did not come to make salvation possible for all. He came to secure salvation for His special people, the people whom He was given in eternity past. And, and what we're going to do is we're going to look at, at some of these terms today. And really what, what you're going to be learning is that these terms just... There's no way that these terms themselves that we find in the Bible could support unlimited atonement. They can't, they can't support it. They show the intentionality of Christ's work, His deliberate work. These words affirm this, and these are Bible words. So we're going to look at some of these Bible words, and, and quite frankly, we have looked at some of them already. So you're going to be like, oh, here we go. Here's a lot of repetition. Well, you know what? We may have looked at a couple of these words in, in past lectures, but we haven't really broken them down to see what they actually mean. And so I think it'll still be fresh. We need to pray for God's help before we get to work. Father, there is so much resistance to, to your word. And, and it's, just, it's just kind of mind-boggling. And Lord, I, I just pray that you humble us and you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth, that we would find our foundation for Calvinistic soteriology, not just in church history or in what Pastor Phil says it should be or any of these things, but we would find it in Scripture. Calvinism is based on the clear teachings of Scripture. If it weren't, it wouldn't be worth beans, and it is, Father, and so Help us this morning just to, just to understand these terms so that we can see how unique and precise they are and how they, they shout from the rooftops that Christ did something in particular for a particular people. These terms can't be used in a universal way. It doesn't work. And so just help, us to, con just help to convince us this morning through the power of the Holy Spirit of this precious doctrine, limited atonement, which Scripture teaches. Help us to do that. Help us to, to get on board with your word and help us to be good and faithful stewards of the doctrines and truths we've been learning. I'm thankful for John, who's not afraid to talk about these things with his coworkers. He's dealing with police officers. That makes it even more challenging. But I appreciate him and his boldness and his desire to, to share these truths with others and to even take the stripes when they come. He's been told that his pastor's a nut job, which means John's basically a nut job, and that's okay. We'll take those stripes. That's a badge of honor. We want to be about the Word and about the truth, not about men's opinions. And so just help us this morning to learn and to grow in, in this truth and this precious doctrine, limited atonement. Uh, we pray that you move in our midst through the Spirit and you're glorified, and we pray in Christ's name, amen.
So we have that fifth piece of evidence, and that would be biblical terminology associated with Christ's death. We're going to look at three biblical terms this morning. Like I said, a couple of them will be familiar because we've already hit on them a little bit in past lectures. And the first one I'd like to look at is a atonement. Atonement. We've been using this word a lot lately because we've been focusing on the atonement of Christ, but we really haven't taken a moment to break the actual word down, have we? We haven't. We haven't broken it down. We haven't given a, a good, proper biblical uh, definition of it. And if we take atonement and divide it into three parts or three words, we end up with at one mint. At one mint. If, if, we, if we take atonement and break it into three syllables, that's what we end up with. And this is the literal meaning of the word atonement. It means to make at one. Make at one. Uh, atonement means to make at one those who were formerly at odds with each other. That's what atonement means biblically. Uh, the word appears roughly 80 times primarily or mostly, if not always, in the Old Testament because the Old Testament has the sacrificial system, the Old Covenant, and atonement really has that connotation of sacrifice. So that's where we see it. 47 of those appearances are in the book that actually lays out the sacrificial system. Which book is that? Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 1, God describes how He intends to deal with sin because we have a, a sin problem, right? All our sinners, all have fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No, not one. Everyone's a sinner. And God kind of lays out in that opening chapter of Leviticus how He's going to deal with our sins. Because if He does not deal with our sins, then we can have no fellowship with the Holy God. We cannot know Him unless He does something about it. And Leviticus 1 is kind of the initial description of how He's going to deal with sin and, and, and make the Israelites, per se, his covenant people, how he's going to make them one with him. Listen to these steps that are laid out in that opening chapter. The Israelite, because that's the context, right? That's who basically is being addressed here. It's not the whole world. It's the Israelites, the covenant people of God. They must offer from the herd a male animal without blemish. Verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3. There's an initial step there. Look, if you bring forth an animal, we can use it for atonement to make you at one with me. This is what God is teaching His people here. Second step, the Israelite must lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, verse 4a. Basically, the animal that he picks from the herd, the, the spotless animal, it can't be one that's got you know three legs, it's a tripod, it's got to be a good animal. It's got to be presentable. He's got to bring that animal forward. And before it's offered on the altar, he's got to lay his own hand on the head of that animal. Do you know what that represents? The transfer of his sin to that innocent animal. That's what that represents. The placing of the hand, is, it, it's symbolic of that man or woman's sin. That Israelite, male or female, their sin going to that animal. That poor animal, Right? That's the transfer of sin. So they pick an animal and they put their hand on it, symbolizing the transfer of their sin to that poor animal. 
Uh, third step, the Israelite shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons and priests shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. That's verses 5 through 6. Take, take note of that, at the entrance of the tent of meeting is where this takes place. This, this blood is, is shed. First of all, that, that Israelite has to kill that animal, and they probably raise that animal from... This is like taking your favorite dog and killing the animal that you love. I mean, God really wanted this whole experience to impact His people because He wanted them to know how serious sin is. This isn't just an animal you pick out from the, from the goat herd in the back. This is an animal that you kept with you, and it would run around your house. I don't understand that, but that's what they did. I guess some people have pot belly pigs. I'm looking at one of them right now over in the corner. Uh, but this is an animal that, 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 that you had an affection for, and you would bring it, and, 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 then, and then you would have to kill it. That would not be easy. But then the blood is spread on the altar, which is near the tent of meeting. Why is it spread at the entrance near the tent of meeting? That's the symbolizing of that blood, buying your way into something with God so that you can pass through and have fellowship with Him. That's why it's done at the entrance. All the symbolism here. And then what does it say? It, this isn't even an instruction. Here, here's, the last, here's the last result, the end result of the Israelite complying with God's uh, his law on, on how to make a, a sacrificial atonement, how to be one with God, right? Here's the end result. Once he's picked the animal and, and brought the animal and slayed the animal and its blood is shed, last thing, the Israelites shall be accepted before the Lord, verse 4b. So you've got selection of the bull, you've got the offering of the bull, you've got the slaughter of the bull, and you've got the blood of the bull, and the end result is the believing Israelite's sins are atoned for, and he or she becomes acceptable or at one with God. That's how God determined, even going all the way back to Adam and Eve, how He determined that He would have fellowship with His covenant people was through the blood of an innocent animal, the transfer of sin of that, those people, those sinners to the animals, the slaughter of those animals, the spilling of blood. And this pattern had to be repeated over and over and over. Why? Because the blood of bulls is insufficient in making a lasting or permanent atonement, Hebrews 10.4. Only the Lamb of God could do that, not these other lambs, not these other bulls. They had to do this over and over and over. Just imagine taking these animals from your flock and from your family, in a sense, and having to kill them all the time because of your sin. I think that that would be a wonderful deterrent against sin, wouldn't it? Having to go through this process over and over and seeing all this bloodshed. And we, don't take, <laughs> we don't take sin very seriously today, but I'm pretty sure if we had to take an animal from our flock once a month or so, if not more frequently than that, I think we take it pretty serious. Some of us don't even like, you know, red meat. I do. But think about that. That's God's way of having at one mint with Himself. The atonement or this atonement, this blood-bought reconciliation with God, because that's essentially what atonement is. This atonement, this blood-bought reconciliation with God was specifically applied to the one who selected, slaughtered, and shed the blood of the bull. It applied to no one else. We talked about this a few weeks ago. 
Steve takes an animal down there. He's a man of faith. He, he's an Israelite. He loves the Lord, and he follows the Lord's commands, and he wants to be at one with God. He takes an animal down there to the tabernacle or to the temple, and he offers it. He goes through all these steps, and, and, and because of his obedience here and God's mercy and grace through this process, he is made at one with God. Guess what? If I'm standing there with him, I have not been made at one with God because I didn't offer the animal. Steve did. It covers him and him alone. It applied to no one else. It was limited in its scope. Even on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, we talked about this. The high priest, he made an atonement that was specifically applied to Israel and to no other nations. That Yom Kippur sacrificial atonement applied to Israel and Israel only. The purpose of the blood of bulls was to remit sin. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, and make specific sinners at one with God. That's the process that we're studying here in Leviticus 1, 3 through 6. The atonements of the, the Old Testament sacrificial system, we know this, they foreshadowed what was to come. They point forward to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the ultimate and final sacrifice. And when he died on the cross, he made an atonement. He shed his precious blood to permanently remit the sin of specific sinners and make them at one with God forever and ever. The blood of bulls was offered for specific individuals and a specific nation. The blood of the Lamb was given for specific individuals and a specific people, those who were chosen and predestined to salvation. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 talks about being predestined and chosen, those things. This, to be made at one, it just, if Christ goes to the cross in a universal way to make at one with God, that's what His atoning work does. If it's for everyone but nobody in particular, then who... Who's it for? It, you can't be for everyone and no one in particular at the same time. When he, when he went to the cross, he, he went there with specific people on his mind that he knew from eternity past to make this atonement, to make that specific people at one with God. He established that at-oneness at Calvary. He could not have done this hypothetically. Well, I, I did it, so hopefully some people will believe. The word atonement can't mean that. It's not a universal term. But the Arminian rejects this view. He says that Jesus died for everyone, and His death makes at one with God just a, basically a possibility for all. But this theology they have denies the Old Testament and New Testament meaning of the word atonement. There is a specificity with it. God makes at one with Him those whom, the tar whom He targets for it. Those whom He has commanded to either make these offerings or those whom He has commanded Jesus to make that once and final offering for those particular people. There's no such thing. And what the Arminian really is pushing is a potential or a possible atonement. But there's no such thing as a potential or possible atonement in Scripture. You either have atonement or you don't. 
God has either made some people at one with him or he's made nobody at one with him. This idea that it's, it's just kind of offered out there as a gift is ridiculous. That defies the word atonement because atonement is a deliberate term that means deliberate action has been taken and it is deliberately applied to somebody, not just for everybody. There's no such thing as possible or potential atonement in Scripture. When an Israelite sacrificed an animal on the altar, its blood did not make atonement possible. Could you imagine if you went through all that trouble to take that animal that you love down there to do that, and then God says, well, I might atone for your sin. Or maybe I won't apply it to you, but I'll apply it to these guys over here, the ones that are smoking weed behind the tabernacle. I don't know where that reference came from. It's not in my script. I wouldn't write that. But since we're next to a smoke shop, you understand. They're smoking weed behind this tabernacle all the time. You, you, go, you go through all this trouble. Your, ex, your expectation is that you would be at one with God because you have followed what He has told you to do. You followed the prescription. Jesus goes to the cross. We would expect that that atonement was specifically applied to somebody and not just out there in the flux. Oh, just floating out there. You just have to grab it, Phil. No. When Jesus, let's put it this way. When an Israelite sacrificed an animal on the altar, its blood did not make atonement possible. It secured a literal atonement. It paid for the Israelite's sins and made him or her at one with God. When Jesus bled and died on the cross, His blood did not make atonement possible. It secured a literal atonement, just as every atonement in the Old Testament made a literal atonement. His blood paid for the sins of His people and made them at one with God. Does that make sense to you? Paul expresses this truth just so clearly, so lucidly in, in Romans 5.10 where it says, um, where it says, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. I didn't write that. So, so His death on the cross actually atoned for or reconciled. They basically mean the same thing. It reconciled a people to God. That's a deliberate atonement. The term reconciled is similar to atonement. It means to make one. When Jesus died on the cross, He literally reconciled His people to God. Now, you might say, well, some of us didn't even exist yet then. Well, of course not. But it doesn't mean that His work wasn't finished on our behalf, even though we weren't in time and space yet. He accomplished it way back then. He died for us while we were sinners. And while some of us didn't even have a chance to sin yet because we hadn't come along yet. Jesus made reconciliation between His people and the Father a reality, not a possibility. That's the meaning of atonement. It can't mean anything else. It can't, it can't be used in a universal way. James Montgomery Boyce wrote this, and this comes out of that book we've been pushing. Christ's work on the cross was not a hypothetical salvation for hypothetical believers, but a real and definite salvation for God's own chosen people. That is the right way to define atonement. 
So atonement is the first word. It means to make at one. And when Jesus went to the cross nearly 2,000 years ago, he literally made at one a particular people with God. He set up all of it so that it would be foundational and a reality and, and a done deal for those who would believe those are the elect. There is a literal at one there at the cross. Let's move to the second term. This is not one we've looked at yet. Redemption. Redemption's a great word. It's a, actually a commercial term. It basically means to buy back, to purchase or to buy back. It appears throughout Scripture in, in several different contexts, about 26 times. In antiquity, redemption frequently pertained to slavery. A benevolent person might pay the redemption price to free a favored slave. Like maybe you're a benevolent person and you've got some money and you want to buy a slave out of that slavery. That would be to redeem that slave. Think of Ruth and Boaz, that whole scenario. That's redemption, to buy out of, to buy back. Uh, redemption in our day and age is associated with pawn shops. We don't see very many of those anymore, but there's still a few of them floating around. And in some of the bigger urban developed cities and all that, you see them all over. The idea there is if we run out of cash, we can take an item to a pawn shop and pawn it for a fraction of its value. If we come into a few bucks a little later on, we can return to the pawn shop, pay the redemption price, and get our item back. Or when we take our recyclables to the recycling center, the redemption price we paid up front is finally returned to us. In other words, the state buys back our cans and bottles with our own money. Welcome to California. Have you ever noticed that? That when you buy cans and bottles, it says on there you're paying a redemption price. You're paying a little bit more. And the idea there and the motive there is that you can redeem that money and get it back if you take those cans and bottles in. It's like, it's like socialistic forced recycling. If you want your money back, then you do what we tell you and take these things to the nasty recycling center over at Coffee and where's that one we go to? I'm always in a big line of people, but I do it. It's not because I, I want that money back, but I just, I don't know, I just, maybe I'm a little environmentally conscious, not really, but, but that's the idea of redemption there, getting back what you had to pay in. That helps us think of it. Uh, the terminology of redemption is used in connection with Jesus' death. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is, or cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So in this scenario, He is redeeming us from the curse of the law because everyone who breaks God's laws basically goes to hell, and He died to redeem us from that curse so that we wouldn't go to hell for being lawbreakers. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, In Christ we have redemption in Him through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. There's the redemption uh, which symbolizes forgiveness, and it's, it's accomplished through His blood. And this is something that He did for us on the cross. No, but the Arminian says He did it for everyone unilaterally, but really for no one in particular. Impossible. 
1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, I took this from the H, HCSB, which is a good translation, kind of switches from literal to dynamic. You were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from the fathers, not with perishable things like gold and silver, or silver and gold, silver and gold, reminds me of that movie, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. Well, that's what we've been talking about. We're redeemed, bought out of slavery and bought out of a meaningless, worthless sort of life of sin. These verses all talk about how Christ did some redeeming for us at the cross. And yet the Arminian says that Jesus didn't die to redeem anyone in particular, certainly not for the elect. He died to make redemption a possibility for all. Hmm. But that's not what these passages teach. They say that when Jesus died on the cross, He redeemed us from the curse of the law, from the penalty of sin through forgiveness, and from an empty sinful way of life that had been handed down to us from our sinful ancestors. This is a, a, these are literal redeeming works that Christ did on the cross, not just out there in the flux. He did these things. There is a, a redemption that took place at the cross. Redemption from the curse of the law, redemption from an empty, sinful life, redemption equating to forgiveness. As with atonement, redemption is also specific and targeted. When Jesus died on the cross, He paid the redemption price in blood, and He got something in return, believe me, namely His people. When a person redeems an item, he or she gets the item. That's the meaning of redemption. You pay, you get. It's not you pay and you could get. Right? That's swindling. When, when you redeem an item, you get the item. That's the meaning. There's no such thing as potential redemption where you pay and you might get something. It doesn't work that way. Wouldn't, wouldn't that stink if you went into Save Mart and you laid down a whole bunch of money for groceries and then you went to bag them and they said, you can't take these with you. The heck I can, I just paid for them. No, you can't take them. That's not the way it works. Therefore, anyone who wants them. What? I'd be calling American Express, can you stop payment at Save Mart? Why are you shopping there? I don't know. It was close. Why don't you go to Winco? That's normally where I go. Why? It's cheaper. Yeah, I know. Bye. That's not in the script. There's no such thing as potential redemption. You get what you paid for. And, and if, if, if we're going to be daring enough to say that he didn't redeem anyone in particular. He goes to the cross and he makes a payment, but he doesn't get anything for his blood. Hopefully he will. I mean, that's just blasphemous. That's unbelievable. Jesus gets his groceries. You understand what I'm saying, right? When I go into the store and lay down a few bucks for groceries, I expect to walk out with groceries. All right? There is an exchange of currency for goods. I pay, 
I walk out with groceries. Depending on what store I go to, I may walk out with a lot of groceries. I may not walk out with very many. At Costco, I pay $300, I got four items. I got a chair, I got a small TV, I'm just kidding. I got like frosted flakes. There is an exchange of currency for goods. That's what redemption means. At the cross, currency was exchanged for goods, just as in commerce. Jesus died and, and shed His precious blood. That's the currency in exchange for His people. That's the goods. Now listen to the benefits of redemption. Here they are, some of them at least. One of the benefits of redemption is the forgiveness of sins, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. And then you've got righteousness. That's a benefit of redemption. Romans chapter 5, verse 17. You've got freedom from the curse of the law. We looked at that one, Galatians 3, 13. You've got adoption into God's family. You've got Galatians uh, 4, 5 there on that one. You've got deliverance from sin's bondage, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. You've got peace with God. How wonderful is that? Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. You've got possession of the Holy Spirit. He indwells the elect, the people whom God chose for salvation. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 to 20. And then you've got the big one at the end of it here. You've got eternal life. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 to 10. Those are all the bennies of redemption. When Christ pays, that's what His people get. Now just think about this. There is no way Jesus came to secure these things for no one in particular or for hypothetical believers. He did not die to make redemption and its benefits merely possible and then leave it in the hands of spiritually dead sinners to decide. Can you imagine? If, that's, if the Arminian case is true, then Jesus, we're dealing with uh, spiritually dead sinners, total depravity, and then Jesus gets nobody if it's left to us. He goes through all of that suffering, all of that anguish, all of that bleeding and torture for what? Nothing. Maybe someone will believe. No, 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 no. Jesus did not gamble with His precious blood like this. He paid the full redemption price. Why? To purify for Himself a people for His own possession. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. I did not write that. The Bible says that. Redemption was deliberate and targeted. And the benefits are applied in time and space to those whom God chose. You can't have a redemption where it's just a possibility. It doesn't make any sense. The Word doesn't permit that kind of interpretation. I don't understand why people can't figure this out. It can't, it doesn't, none of these words permit that kind of interpretation. There's no universality here at all. You pay, you get. And that's what Jesus did. Propitiation, C, we did talk about this one a little bit last Sunday. I think it appears four times in the New Testament. I know it certainly appears four, at least four times in the ESV translation, which is my preference. Romans chapter 3, verse 25, God put Christ forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Hebrews 
2.17, therefore Christ had to make had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 1 John 2, 2, we certainly focused on this one. Christ is the propitiation for our sins. That's for John and, and for the audience he was writing to. And then he says, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world, believers for all time people from every tribe and tongue. And then John says it again in chapter 4, verse 10, 1 John 4, 10, in this is love. He's like defining what love is, not that we have loved God, but that He, has, that, but that he loved us and He expressed His love by what? He sent His Son to be, to be the propitiation for our sins. There's its four occurrences in the ESV. Propitiation means to appease to appease. When Christ paid for the sins of His people on the cross, He appeased the wrath of God so that God is no longer angry or wrathful toward them. That's what it means to propitiate. The Arminian says that Christ died to propitiate for no one in particular, certainly not for the elect, but really for everyone unilaterally. It's a universal propitiation that He's, that he's made here. Well, if this were true, then everyone would be saved from the wrath of God and hell would be closed and non-existent. God would not be calling all people everywhere to repent because there would be no fixed day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 to 31, that'll be our Easter text. Again, fun. If propitiation, which is a deliberate, purposeful, applied act, it's not universal, it's specific, if it had been made for all, then why do we see the effects of God's wrath all around us? Well, He's not mad at people anymore for their sins if, if this is a universal propitiation by Christ. His wrath is done, it's gone, and yet we see it everywhere. And you might be thinking, well, I haven't seen any asteroids fall out of the sky and crush people and, and these sorts of things. Well, wrath can look like that, but it can also look in, like other things. We see the effects of God's wrath all around us, especially here in America. According to Romans chapter 1, the sure sign of God's wrath toward ungodly righteous men and women is that they have been given over to the lusts of their hearts. Verse 24a, Romans chapter 1, or Romans chapter 1, verse 24a. What, what I'm telling you is that God's wrath is manifested against sinners by God turning them over to their lusts and letting them go after all of these lustful, sinful, wicked desires, all the things that they want to do with their flesh. That's a form of God's wrath. That's not just sinful behavior. That's also God saying, I'm, I'm going to leave you alone. That's what it means to be turned over. I'm going to leave you alone in that and let you do that. I'll let you destroy yourself. That's a form of His wrath. That's not just sinners being sinners. That's also God turning them over. And, and, and because He turns them over to the lusts of their hearts, because the lusts of their hearts is all they want, it's all they care. All, all they care about is just evil all the time. Remember what happened before He flooded the world? God 
looks out over creation, all he sees is men and women who just want to be violent and evil. Every thought and inclination of their minds was evil. That's what he sees today. He's turned people over to the lust of their hearts in wrath. And guess what happens? We're going to talk about this next Sunday. Here's what follows. A sexual revolution. Chapter 1, verse 24b. When did that start in America? The 60s? Yeah. Certainly didn't happen. It start during the Leave it to Beaver era. Can you imagine that? Don't imagine that. I'm sorry. So, so, so you can tell that America has been turned over to the wrath of God because we have seen for 50 plus years now a sexual revolution in America. And guess which one follows that? A homosexual revolution. And we see that in uh, chapter 1 of Romans, verses 26 and 27. Are we not in the midst of a homosexual revolution? We are. You'll have a sexual revolution. It's MacArthur that's been talking about this lately. Praise God. We, you've got a, when you're turned over to the wrath of God, you'll see a sexual revolution. You'll see a homosexual revolution. And then ultimately, society will be, that sinful society will be given over to a debased mind, which means that people will no longer be able to tell right from wrong. We see that in chapter 1, verse 28. Are we not seeing that today? We're talking about insanity here. Many of us are scratching our heads as we, as we read the headlines in the news, and we're, we're trying to figure out how a transsexual is put over the health department in the country. A transsexual is somebody that, that, that has... Some problems there and can't figure out basic biology. And these. It's insane to appoint somebody like that to a person. I'm not trying to hack on the transsexual. That person needs the gospel. But it's insanity to think that somebody like that can run the health of the nation. Basically, what happens is you've got a, a heterosexual revolution, you've got a homosexual revolution, you've got them being turned over to a debased mind, meaning people are going to be going insane. Men will think they are women. Women will think they are men. And the government will legislate to protect their rights, and it will punish anyone who gets in the way of that or says anything even remotely negative about that. Even if you were to say, well, I, don't, I, I, I understand there's two biological genders. You can get slammed for that. I heard in Australia you can get incarcerated now for saying something like that. So what we're seeing is the insanity, it's pervasive in our culture, but it's reached the highest levels of governance. This is what it means to be turned over to the wrath of God. And you know what? Many of us have been saying, there's, I don't think there's any way out of this. Well, there wasn't in Isaiah's day. I mean, just think about this. I want to pick on Biden here. He's the president. We need to honor that office. But just think of what he said lately. He said, the civil rights issue of our day is transsexual rights. With all this BLM talk and all this, all this uh, uh, violence and all this hatred toward Asians now and blacks, now, you, you would think, if that's true, you would think that that would be the civil rights issue of our day. But no, it's transsexual rights, which I didn't even know there was such a thing. And what does he do after making that statement? He follows it by signing an executive order to allow trans men to compete in women's sports. Romans 1, turned over to wrath, depravity. That's what we're talking about here. Now, I'm going to talk about this more on Easter Sunday. 
Look, my point is this. I bring all that up. That's a whole different sermon. It will be next Sunday. But my point is this. The Arminian says that Christ propitiated for everyone in a universal kind of way. He, he, he quelled and subdued the wrath of God against all. That's what he did when he went to the cross. If, if that's true, like the Arminian says, then, then why has America been... It's, it's absolutely under the wrath of God. Because Romans 1 describes what it means to be under the wrath of God. You've got a sexual revolution, homosexual revolution. You've got pervasive insanity. We see that here. Maybe what's so mind-blowing about that is that none of us ever anticipated that we would see anything like that. I certainly never did in my 51 years. These are crazy times. Why? Because this nation is under the wrath of God. That's why. There's, there's no universal propitiation here. We can, see the, we, can see the, we can see the universal wrath of God upon mankind, especially here in America. I mean, think about that. If there was a universal propitiation made here, the wrath of God is gone, then He would be perfectly pleased with everything that is happening. <laughs> maybe, maybe if you care to say something like that, you just don't know what the Bible says about God and you don't understand His holiness. We can see His wrath all around us. He has turned our society over to lust. We're beginning to see this widespread insanity, even at the highest levels of government. As with atonement and redemption, propitiation is also specific and targeted. All three of them, specific and targeted. Christ died to propitiate the wrath of God. There is a literal propitiation that took place on the cross, and we know that it can't be for everybody because people are under the wrath of God. It can only be for those whom He propitiated for, His people. I'm not under the wrath of God. I'm seeing it all around me. If you're in Christ, you're not under the wrath of God. You're just living in a nation where the wrath of God is present. But His wrath is not directed toward me. Why? Because Christ propitiated the wrath of God for all His people for all time. You understand? That's the meaning of propitiation. Uh, just think about it. If, if Christ goes to the cross to propitiate and it's just the potential for propitiation, it's not an actual propitiation, then that means the wrath of God is still on me and you and every believer and everyone else. But the Arminian hates that theology. He can't stand it. He insists that it's just potentially out there. And I say it is not potentially out there. God's wrath is propitiated toward those whom Christ died for. It's specific, it's targeted. What does the Scripture say about those who are in Christ, the elect? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Romans 8, 1. Why is there no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ? Because the wrath of God has been propitiated for us. That's why. We've been redeemed. We've been atoned for. And if you're curious as to how that works, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Think about this. Those who are in Christ were chosen to be in Christ before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4. God planned all along to send Christ to propitiate His wrath toward those whom He loved in eternity past and chose to save, to make a redemption, to buy them out of their bondage and slavery, to atone for them, to make them at one with the Father. It was His plan all along. These words do not support any kind of universal situation here. They can't. They can't do it. 
God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. Why? Because He made us at one, because He redeemed us, because He propitiated the wrath of God for us. He sent Christ to propitiate for His people so that they will receive and enjoy the wonderful salvation God planned for them all along. That's the meaning of these words. Conclusion. The biblical terms we looked at this morning, atonement, redemption, and propitiation, they do not support Arminian soteriology, especially the doctrine of universal atonement. Doesn't matter how hard someone tries, you can't make things mean what they don't mean. If Christ had atoned for all people, then all people would be atoned for because He made a literal atonement. If Christ had redeemed all people, then all people would be redeemed because He paid a literal redemption price. If Christ had propitiated for all people, then all people would be safe from the wrath of God because He made a literal propitiation at the cross. These biblical terms are neither hyperbolous nor hypothetical. They represent the literal blood-bought work of Christ. If we agree with the Arminian and say that Christ secured these things for all people, then all people are the beneficiaries and must be saved. That is the logical conclusion. But is it reality? No! Hell is full of people. It's got room. Universal atonement based on these concepts that the Arminians were pushing at, in 1618 and 1619 for, you know, in favor of universal atonement. It was rejected at the Synod of Dort because of these things. It was rejected not only because it's unscriptural, but because it's nonsensical. It makes no sense. Universal atonement makes no sense. Or unlimited atonement, it makes no sense. Christ could not have died for all because this means all will be saved. And we just know by simple, simply looking around us and what the Scripture says, we know that's not true. Like our Calvinist brothers at Dort, we must reject the doctrine or the Arminian doctrine of universal atonement. We have to reject it because it just diminishes. It destroys what Christ came to do. It doesn't undermine it. It destroys it. We must reject universal atonement. Why? The eternal decree of God doesn't support it. The Old Testament doesn't support it. The New Testament doesn't support it. The verses Arminians go to don't support it. And the biblical terms that are associated with Christ's death don't support it. So we come out of this going, I believe in universal atonement. Sounds like the insanity we mentioned a little bit ago, doesn't it? Over the course of three weeks, we have learned that the opposite is true. The Bible teaches limited atonement. The evidence for this precious doctrine is as I said it would be. It is overwhelming and irrefutable. Every verse that's put forward for 
unlimited can be dealt with in context. And it either means limited atonement or it's not pointing to the atonement at all. We taught, I taught you this last week. Now, here's the deal. If you're still on the fence, maybe, you have, maybe you're still on the fence. You're not sure. Maybe you still have some questions. You just didn't want to speak up at the potluck or whatever. You don't want to be embarrassed. There's nothing embarrassing about asking questions about these truths. These, these, we're supposed to be Bereans. We're supposed to study the Word and come to these conclusions on our own, not just because Phil's super, super passionate and sweaty about them. Yeah, that's what I feel like. You, you, you've got to come to terms with, the word of, with what the Word of God says. But if you're on the fence, I understand it. I understand what it means to be on the fence because we have been taught contrary things. I get it. Maybe you're not ready to commit a verbal 415. Maybe you're like me and that's all you did on Facebook. Right? I don't have Facebook anymore. I couldn't manage it well. I'm immature. Maybe you're on the fence. Maybe you're not sure. I just want to encourage you to talk to one of the elders. I want to encourage you to interact with a believer who's been looking into these things. There's quite a few here still looking into them and can have good conversation with you about them. I would encourage you to be humble and patient. God will get you from point A to point B in His timing. He will. Sometimes it takes a little bit of time. There's a lot that, that, that needs to be undone in our lives. And it, I've said this before. I don't know if I've said it in this context, but I've said it in our men's Bible study. You just think about the work of Christ, the work of God in your life, the sanctifying work, right? When you first get saved, God begins the process of undoing all of the previous years of buffoonery. And that takes time to undo certain patterns of thinking and behavior, And right? As soon as you're saved, as soon as God comes in power and, and saves you by His Holy Spirit, regenerates you, you, you become awakened and alive to God. But that's when the process of undoing all of the past kind of begins. And you start learning things about yourself and, oh my goodness, I didn't realize I did this or did that. And I do know some things that I've been doing. I need to get rid of those things, right? Your life begins to change. And here's, here's what's crazy. You can get saved in an Arminian church. If they preach the gospel, if they talk about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and call men to repent and believe, the potential for salvation is there. Now, you could get saved and God could begin the process of undoing your past life, and then you could spend years in an Arminian church, and then there comes a new kind of birth point where God begins to undo all the faulty, bad theology that you learned over the last 10 years. This happens all the time. So be patient and be humble. Expect God to do great things in your life and to transform your thinking and to ground you in His Word. He's patient and kind toward His people. He'll get us there. And some of us have been in some circles where we've taken on a lot of really bad, empty, worthless theology, and God's in the process of undoing that. This series is made for that, to undo the wrong view of salvation. So just be patient. Be patient. Be humble. He'll get you there. And if your understanding of the atonement has been completely overhauled during this series, or if it's grown even just a little bit, just rejoice and praise God for His work in your heart. It shows that He's working. He's been working on everyone in here and people who aren't here today lately on this whole thing. He's been using this series. I've been asking myself, why did it take us nine years to do this? 
because Pastor Phil did not have the maturity to do it the way that I could do it. And if I'd have done it back when I became a Calvinist, this church would be empty. I'd be like, great, I'm the only Calvinist here now. Guess I need to go find a job. Because sometimes when you come into this knowledge and it's a grace, we don't handle it right. Right? We're learning big things. Big, mysterious things, and, and sometimes we can take that knowledge and it can puff us up. Be mindful of that, John, and I'm not saying that you would misuse it, but you're in a context where guys don't understand. Learn from this buffoon who spent years pulverizing people with these truths to my own shame as a detriment to the gospel. Don't do that. And God's timing is always perfect, is it not? He has you right where He wants you. So be humble, keep exploring, keep dialoguing. If he's overhauling your soteriology, praise him for that. If he's just taking it a little bit and, and helping you understand some things that you didn't quite grasp before and there's little change, hey, thank him and glorify him for all of it. He's worthy. He's doing this for us as a grace. Amen?